I got first involved in the technology world starting back in the first dot-com era. So this is definitely going to age me. I started my career in consulting uh, and did that for a few years and then was seeing the the rush to create companies and start a startup. And I decided to do that after a couple of years of consulting and being on the road. And while it was a great boot camp for me and just learning lots of business fundamentals, it also was seemed like it wasn't going to be like my long-term career vision and where I would want to spend my time. Just again, like we'll have said that the idea of building something and growing it is to me more exciting and rewarding than solving a problem and then moving on to solve another problem. So that's how I decided to give that a, a chance in the first wave of internet revolution. And uh, at a startup and we rode the boom and bust cycle. We had raised capital. We had gotten up to probably 50, 60 employees. And then the market crashed and funding was starting to dry up. We actually had a close. It was two or three days after the NASDAQ crashed where everything changed. So oh. it was bad timing and uh, ended up you know, needing to do what a lot of companies have been doing just now, which is you're in triage mode and ended up moving the company into a private equity firm where they combined it with a couple of other assets. The company was focused on software, software as a service in essence, before there was yeah. SaaS really, before there was cloud, we were integrating different applications together and then putting a new front end on it instead of going through the cycle of having to pick three or four different softwares and then make sure they work together. As I learned as a consultant that having two-year implementations for software was unreasonable with how fast things were moving now that the internet has come. The enterprise resource planning ERP software market had these multi-year implementations because there's all these existing business processes that had to be integrated into an entirely new way of doing things with the software, whereas on the internet or e-business as they called it then, everything was new. So there wasn't legacy things necessary to integrate. So why would it take the same amount of time and be running in the same model as it was before? So that was the idea is to pre-integrate these things, make it so that it's ready to go. We rented server and rack space on data centers, colo centers, we used to call them back then, and then offered it out as a service model. So it was really just early because obviously SaaS and cloud are massive multi-hundred billion dollar industry. But back then this was all in that first wave and it really hadn't taken hold yet. And then the market fell out from underneath. So that was uh, that first initial experience and how I got started in the business. Um, and then a couple of years in after writing that out, I really started grasping into what ended up becoming my entree into the video world, which was looking at semantic search technology, because semantic search technology was then being used to understand video transcripts, which was the only way to create an index of what would be searchable in video, because otherwise, back then, we're, there wasn't on-screen character recognition yet, or automated content recognition to create patterns of what's inside video and then understanding what that content is. So it was about video transcriptions and then contextual technology to understand what a transcript is about. And that's how I started working in video, which is really through the video search route. Then I ended up from working in a couple of startups there to Yahoo and working on their initial video packaging and video distribution strategies, and then ultimately their video monetization strategies. So it was really the beginning of Yahoo Sports bringing in interesting content from the MLB all the way 
back in like 2008, 2009 and originals that were being shot for entertainment and for news and Yahoo Finance was like doing live streaming, right? In a lot of ways, it was very early. Again, Yahoo was like a pioneer in almost a lot of things that seem commonplace now. Uh, so that was an amazing experience. And just working in a place like that at that time, you just learned a ton. A lot of people called Yahoo like the GE of the internet because it really did have an amazing training program and it had so many original pioneers that have all gone on to do amazing things. Like if you checked who's running a lot of the big companies today, there's a good chance that a lot of them, right, had served their time in Yahoo. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I see that. So it's an amazing journey. And I think it's, it must be strange but nostalgic to look back before even SaaS was a word, really, isn't it? And looking where the technology has is, is come, really, from yeah. that. And before I know from video the was commonplace, on, there were no smartphones yet. And video was really limited to the origins of YouTube pre-Google buying yes. it, right? So it didn't work that great because it was too popular and it wasn't, yeah. didn't have enough infrastructure. Yeah, so I stayed in the video side from there moving into a company called Freewheel, which was the originator of video ad serving, right? So ad serving had really been a display oriented mechanism and Freewheel really created the idea of being able to insert ads inside of a video, right? So it could mimic ad insertion on television, which was really important for video to become as big as it is because obviously premium videos expensive to produce, right? Not everything is just user generated or now TikToks where the tools are so great. You can shoot the stuff on your phone. It looks good and you don't have to do much else. It doesn't yeah. mean that it's already always professionally produced, but if you're going to get the big TV companies and the big video distribution companies and the movie studios to start creating content for the internet and mobile, you needed to have proper video ad serving so they can monetize it. And it goes even deeper than that. Right. Every share of an ad in one of these devices has rev splits to the production company, to the company that did the cameras. Everybody has a piece of that monetization because typically it's like getting a piece of a ticket sale or if a TV network picks up a show and they're paying the production company X millions of dollars for the show, they know how to allocate that money to everyone who's entitled to it. So you also had to be able to do all those calculations per ad. and. Wow. So it was very complicated, right? And, and Freewheel ended up being acquired by Comcast. So where it is still the largest video ad serving company in the world, right? That's now become a global uh, company. That's where I really understood how the sell side of the business worked. That's where I understood how the economics of TV worked. And that was really valuable, right? And helping bridge the gap between traditional television and what would end up becoming digital video and then mobile video and now streaming, right? It's all been that linear jersey journey. So that was my sell side exposure. And then I worked at a company called Tube Mogul. And uh, they were a video DSP, which has now been acquired by Adobe. So it's the Adobe ad cloud. And that's how I learned how the buy side works, right? And this was the era of programmatic advertising. So being able to be applying automated methods of buying and selling ads. And Tumogo was a pioneer on the video DSP side, the demand side platform. And I was able to take my experience working with the sell side like from Yahoo and Freewheel. And what I did there was help link the demand side to the sell side through figuring out how to make inventory deals work between the sell side and coming into a programmatic buying platform that was going to be used by some of the biggest brands in the world. And right, this was like the automated trading desk where like people are logging in and buying ads like you'd be buying stocks, right? Okay. So that's where programmatic had started to take hold in like the 2013s. And it's still programmatic is now huge, right? Something like 60, 70% of all digital ads are programmatic. All of the wall gardens are programmatic. They're just their own platforms. So that was the buy side. And then from there, 
I wanted to dive more into how does the buy side and the sell side connect, truly connect? Because one side, if you're a supply side sell platform, you're trying to get the highest price. Mm. If you're a buy side platform, you're trying to get the best yield, meaning the lowest mm. price and the most reach. So inherently they're gonna have, let's call it conflict, but they're on two sides of a negotiation, which is how it's gonna always be a buyer and a seller, but what connects them? And so I was on the founding team of a company called Video, which has grown and done quite well and is now truly going to be one of the next currencies to measure streaming and television, right? Which was once a 50-year monopoly basically in the US by Nielsen. And we also had a thesis that it wasn't just going to be about solving measurement with big data, but also how do you connect the buy and the sell side through planning and optimization software, right? So if you're going to now make big data sets available to both sides need applications that they can use to work with that data and their marketing and ad strategies, whether you're the agency or the brand. And on the sell side, it's how do you create a overall optimization plan and how does that integrate into your ad server and your TV insertion system? That market is still coming into fruition, but it was really how measurement and the data under measurement was going to be the future of how that market grew. Streaming wasn't gonna survive because Cost per thousand impressions are lower for the most part in streaming than linear. So viewing is continuing to push from linear into streaming. Unless everybody is going to pay eighteen to twenty dollars for subscription services, you're going to have to have ad-supported streaming, and ad-supported streaming is going to need additional monetization opportunities, and that means you need better data and better tools so that the performance goes up, and therefore the price can go up, but it's justified because the performance is there to back it up. Once again, reinforcing the need for measurement. Sure. Okay, great. You know, that sounds great. And then on to LiveRamp from there, wasn't it? Yes. LiveRamp is the global leader in identity, meaning how do you connect all these various parties, the buy side, the sell side, the ad tech companies, the measurement companies, everybody needs to have an understanding of what is a household and what are the individuals within that household without oh. actually having truly personal information, right? Like not having your name and your email address that is getting sent around the internet. That is mm. not what happens. Now, obviously there's a lot of things going on with privacy and privacy policy, and there's been definitely some abuses of that data, but the industry really operates on the pseudonymized identity infrastructure in which you can actually work with your customer list, for example, and somebody else's customer list or your ad targeting list based on your ad server and work with somebody else's without actually sharing the exact information that you have been collecting, but have collected with authorization and consent, right? So LiveRamp's provided that infrastructure and been the leader in that for a long time. And then, yeah, about four, Years ago, they were also building out a measurement attribution system that would be based on that identity. So you actually measure TV and streaming ads to purchases. So actual attribution, like exposure to these TV ads led to this purchasing of the product or this foot traffic mm -hmm. into a store, right? And working on that as well as then how do you make identity a core part of addressable advertising in oh. terms of how the sellers can actually create scale with addressable audiences and mm -hmm. easily move those into the buy side and then measure it all again and the identity infrastructure underneath so at this time i've definitely gotten a very deep exposure to how the future of measurement is going to work yeah. and so the opportunity with Relo Metrics came about to try to scale and solve some issues here in the sports space right sports sponsorship yeah. marketing is a massive global opportunity you know, we can get into some of these down the road but the idea that the global market for sponsorships is going to be $90 billion. And there's not mm. a 
a lot of standardized way standardized ways to measure the effectiveness and the value of these sponsorships mm-hmm. is a critical thing to solve. Now, mm-hmm. there's other things that are different here. You're not just at home watching and clicking on an ad and therefore you can measure. People are watching this on TV. They're watching it on their phones. People are at games, right? Millions of people went to go see the World Cup games live. You see all the logos integrated, right? In sports in very interesting and innovative ways. Uh, Now we need to put big data behind that. We need to understand how things are valued and connect that value to other parts of the marketing funnel so that both the buyers and the sellers actually know how to optimize sports sponsorships. So there's a lot of parallels, right? From how the ad side works, but sponsorships are a bit different. You don't need as much personal information, which is great because it means that you can create data faster and go into new countries. The way things work in data policy in the United States is completely different than Canada and very different than Europe. So the things that you do in the US that have scaled and done well will not work because privacy regulation is different. Having inability to measure using computer vision versus identity allows you now to create scale and data and start to understand how to measure things without actually having to need consent from people because you're not actually on their devices. You're measuring the broadcast. You're measuring the video as it appears on social, not trying to go to people's social account. We would be in the team or the league social account because they've authorized us to do that. So we can measure using computer vision, how many times a logo is appearing. How clear is that logo? How much time on screen did that logo have? How much share of voice did it have compared to other logos? These are the things that computer vision and AI do. And so that was another very interesting thing for me, which is to now go at creating big data for measurement using other technologies different than what mm. I've done before. Absolutely. And then the technology sounds incredible. Like producing real-time insights so that the value of those sponsorships and partnerships is incredible. And we'll certainly come on to that. But I think that the career you've had at the moment sounds fantastic what you've been through, I guess. Maybe there's probably a few, but are there any real highlights or moments within that career that you're especially proud of? Yeah, I think seeing that video app literally started with 10 of us in almost a little garage in Santa Monica, and now it's poised to be one of the three or four main currencies in the United States television and streaming market, along with an enterprise level software stack to go with, is a really great feeling to to see the success of that. And I spent five years there. It's been probably four since I left and uh, continued to grow and do well and continue innovating and also proving that somebody who's an upstart can disrupt what was thought of to be an undisruptable service. Yeah, amazing. No, the real startup story, that isn't it? No, it's fantastic. You have a lot of experience within the measurement space. So I guess my next question was, how have you managed that transition then from measurement across obviously the broader TV space, especially, but then into now the world of sports? Yeah, so there's different metrics, right? Because the sports world has really not had reliable, consistent data sets. In some cases in the past, there would people literally be trying to calculate this by hand, like people working for a team or a league at games and understanding where things are and like what the attendance was and like what was maybe the viewing, what was the rating for that game and just coming up with measurement like this. But now we're at a point where the sophistication of both the sports teams and leagues, as well as the sponsors has taken on a different aspect. If you think about, let's just zoom out for a minute and talk about sports, right? It used to be like an owner owned one team, right? Now there's owners who pair up with private equity firms 
and they own a football team in the US and a football team in the UK. <laughs> different football and they may be investing in a cricket and they may have some cricket teams in Asia. And so there have become these global enterprises, not just mm -hmm. I own a team in my city. I've done really well. It's my right as a very successful businessman to now own my favorite hometown team, right? It's now much bigger business. You have mm -hmm. the sovereign wealth funds, right? Of Qatar and Saudi Arabia owning teams and starting leagues and creating almost unlimited pay opportunities for the best athletes in those sports. So the teams obviously can't just be writing checks without ever bringing the revenue back, but with mm. as much money as that is on the field, can you ever really recoup that in ticket sales? No. Can you recoup it with television rights? It's on the way. So you need the ticket sales, you need the TV revenue, and then you need the sponsorship revenue, right? Yeah. Those are the three pillars. And all of that needs to be professionalized with scale data, right? Professional mm -hmm. enterprise grade data. And then it has to be able to work in all the other software that the teams and leagues use, right? These are still early days, right? And then you think about sports beyond sports marketing. There's fan engagement data, there's betting data, there's real-time betting data, right? And there's some great companies that have been innovating in that space. So now you have all these different clouds of data that are particularly attuned for what those needs are of international sport. And that innovation is still happening. That market is fragmented at the moment. It's because there's a lot of innovation happening. And there's been a lot of investment and continues to be a lot of investment in that space. So what we are doing around measurement and helping sports marketing and sponsorships get that professionalization of measurement and data, the same thing is happening in multiple aspects of overall sporting. And they have such sophisticated investors now, they're getting like them hiring the people that maybe Google would have hired. You're getting MBA mm -hmm. and coming and building insights and analytics departments. And those are our customers, but they're also the customers of those who are in the sports betting space. Things have changed a ton. Mm. in how sports teams operate, right? It's now not just about managing your arena and stadium and selling mm. season tickets, right? It's mm. so much more than that now. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's incredible how much has changed, as you say, isn't it? Which is fantastic. Well, that sounds great. Well, I guess you're talking about that transition then really, for, for you especially. Have you found that there's been any real key learnings then from your previous roles and that wealth of experience that obviously you brought that you're now applying as CEO then of Relimetrics? Yeah, being able to come here and lead this was really attractive to me. And yeah. what I am being able to do is to bring my experience and surrounding the enterprise with data and making that data available to use in software. And then of course, we also build really valuable software and being able to understand where the market is going because the needs of this market between the buy and the sell side, your rights holders and your brands and your agencies that are in between, I know how these ecosystems get formed, right? Because I've been a part of several of them in the past. So these ecosystems are now forming and then they're going to start being able to need to be connected to those other data sets and sports that are not marketing. And so all of this is going to end up becoming like new and now this is all going to happen in the cloud. Right? It's not going to be these painful integrations. It's going to be done in the cloud where data can be protected and your first party data and the data that you're collecting will remain your own without having to send it around, but you can still collaborate with that with other parts of the ecosystem. So that's where this is going. I've been a part of that and understand how that trend works. And I think that's an advantage that I have that is going to be important to how sports now becomes this ecosystem centric 
software and data-driven market. And hopefully that's a big advantage for Relometrics going forward. Yeah, I'm sure. As you've seen all the sides, which is perfect, isn't it? So that, that sounds fantastic. I guess then moving on from that then. So in, in terms, obviously, the sports marketing world itself, I mean, what, what would you say maybe are the, the big challenges then facing the sports marketing world currently? And how is the industry evolving, really, I guess, from that? Yeah, put simply, you have to show that it, there's value, right? Some of these deals have gotten up to a billion dollars over multiple years. I'm going to be at a conference in London in April yeah. talking about this with, I won't mention it yet, but like two of the biggest names that have cut this kind of deal, but proving the long-term value for both sides is important, right? The, and that is a challenge, right? Because the dollars have gotten bigger because the num the dollars in sports have gotten bigger, right? Mm -hmm. So the value has increased, right? You can look at the rights that Amazon has paid for Thursday Night Football, what Apple just paid for a major league soccer, what those who aired and streamed the World Cup and the Olympics coming up, right? These are huge multi-billion dollar, multi-year commitments. Mm -hmm. So the monetization of that is going to need to happen, right? We know that's the only way this whole industry continues to grow. Mm -hmm. So measuring that value is key and being able to do so consistently, regardless of sport, especially is important for the brand. I was had a meeting yesterday with a very large beverage company that has hundreds of millions in just mm -hmm. North American sponsorship and they're a global brand. So if you think about them, let's say they have 2000 active deals in the sporting world around the world. Mm -hmm. Is it really viable for them and their agency to receive 2000 reports from 2000 different companies using different data twice yeah. a year? What do you do with that? How do you manage your portfolio? And so that has to be done for them because right now, especially in a down market, every marketer has to show and measure the homework, right? They have mm -hmm. to get value back and they have to have credible data because CMOs, this is, if you, I was at CES earlier this year and there's been conferences obviously since, but the number one agenda for all CMOs is measurement and data because Absolutely. in a down market in order to continue to spend you have to understand what you're getting and you can't do that in the way that i was describing right that's not going to work so these are problems and they're opportunities right because that's what's really going to happen next and then it's in order for this to truly be global like being able to set up global operations being able to manage these kinds of data solutions getting your infrastructure set up to analyze and record all the sports that are on TV. There's a lot of work that goes into it and a lot of capital to get there. So the other challenge I would say is the time right now is more on the capital need side. And it's also a very difficult market on the capital allocation side. So it's sports is growing, capital needs are increasing, but capital is a little bit harder to get than it was in 2021. It's not impossible. It's just, more stringent, it's a little bit more time consuming and your mm. metrics have to be on point in order for mm. you to attract investors right now. Yeah, absolutely. And you're so true about the measurement space is the hottest topic right now, isn't it? And our last podcast we had on yeah, was Scott Linzer at Lumen Research, which do face tracking uh, to understand measurement of where are people engaging on the page, which ads are they looking at, which ones aren't they and for how long? So no, I completely understand it's, it's the biggest uh, challenge at the moment. Great that you guys are bringing a solution to that. So I guess really moving from there then, so when it comes to obviously sports in that area now, so what do you consider maybe is to be the most valuable and important media channels? Yeah, it's interesting because the top of the funnel is still that broadcast and stream, yeah. but the ongoing engagement on social is huge and it does differ, right, by different sports, like some sports just have 
a lot more social engagement and they have been building that up for years and some just do really well if the star quarterback is involved in a post and it has a sponsor integrated to it but the fact that you can keep continuing to generate value for your brand partner in social media for several days after a game maybe it's something that went viral and it's weeks after a game right that is a nice advantage over that three to four hour window of the broadcast. But obviously if you are playing in the biggest of games or even just a nationally televised one, mm. you're gonna get a ton of value from a national broadcast. So in the US, if some major league baseball, NBA, hockey, they are covered on regionals, right? That's a challenge today, right? One of the largest regional sports networks filed for bankruptcy. So that's gonna disrupt broadcasts in major league baseball starting the season in a few weeks. So that MLB is solving for that by bringing it all into MLB TV and allowing for free streaming of those games. And so now it's moving to an all digital format from what was a broadcast format. So that's gonna be a challenge, right? But if you are on the game of the week on Saturday morning on Fox, right? Which you're, when your big teams play each other, right? They put those games on. That's gonna be a ton of great value with a, a peak audience. It's gonna have like premier advertising, right? It's gonna be like your biggest national brands. Those are the bigger stages and those create a lot of value. And then if that game is good and has a lot of interesting things happen, it's gonna live on in social for a while, right? And we're really focused on being able to capture all of that. What's happening in the moment and then what happens after. Absolutely, okay, cool. All right, great then. I guess with that, then what you're mentioning there, I guess these obviously valuable channels, how have they maybe then changed, would you say then over the last decade? How have they evolved really from that? You mean the variables that people measure? Yeah, it basically that's also in terms of, I guess, the media channels you were speaking about. Oh, media channels. Yeah, with well, yeah you're seeing things. this transition from broadcast television being carried mm. through a cable or satellite distributor into mm. direct-to-consumer, right? So mm. direct-to-consumer could be Hulu and YouTube TV, right? YouTube TV just won the Sunday ticket sweepstakes with the NFL, and they're gonna bring a whole bunch of innovation to it. It's gonna be leveraging the fact that YouTube TV software on your TV has mm. some special capabilities, and then certain things are gonna be available on just YouTube. So you might be on a browser or on your phone. And so there's gonna be different experiences on YouTube TV versus YouTube, totally new ball game, right? And what those experiences are gonna be like. We are working with some brands in the betting space and they have these really cool like green screen based shows in which they're like previewing like what's gonna happen in the game and like what their thoughts on the betting lines are. And so that is an important branding opportunity for that, but that's a piece of programming. It's not an ad. You can't measure it like an ad because it's programming, right? So you're measuring programming, but it's sponsor programming. The gray area, we're for that, but these are all a part of this transition that's happening. If you watch Thursday Night Football on Amazon Prime, there's an entire channel that's the version of the game with Amazon Next Gen stats on it. And every okay. play, has how fast the ball went, how fast the guy was running, the angle that they took. So like everyone can feel like a football coach while watching this version of the broadcast. Totally different than what you would be doing 10 years ago. And obviously like that changes the game and how brands can be integrated. That's yeah. gonna change, right? What are the requirements to actually measure that? And it's also, Let's face it, all these streaming platforms are trying to win subscribers and customers, right? Away from the legacy business. And so there's that happening. But then you also have all the leagues and teams. They have their own channels and they have their own direct-to-consumer apps. NBA and NBA is available in global countries. So you can, if you're a fan in China, you can watch the Warriors from there, right? It's amazing. And so all of the big leagues have that. And speaking to some of the European football leagues, English Premier League or La Liga in Spain, the teams in La Liga like a Real Madrid are so popular that they actually have their games 
going out on broadcast feeds in 80 countries. There's wow. typically seven language packs. So like different like markets to go with that, but mm -hmm. you have every game being watched in 80 countries. That's how popular that one team is yeah. in that league. So at some point, perhaps in those feeds, they're virtually doing localized sponsors in those seven feeds. Totally different experience for the viewer, right? Yeah. The viewer is now seeing a different game in essence than somebody who's watching in another country. And it's also increased opportunities for marketers, right? But once again, how do you measure all that? Yeah, that's the question. Notice how it? all these things are opportunity for us? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite nice to lead him back to that, isn't it? Every point. <laughs> no, I like it. And I think the availability of data really as these things have improved, it's, it's been incredible. So yeah, it sounds like a, an amazing space and obviously doing some, some incredible things then with Relometrics. Yeah, we get to work in global sports every day and we work worse. with new and emerging sports like we've done competitive swimming yeah. we've done equestrian we've done work with the world surf league we are focusing a ton on women's sport right now because they're getting more viewing and more yeah. fan engagement in terms of tickets and so we're trying to provide some data to marketers so that they continue yeah. to invest in women's sports we just did a 12 team collaboration with the women's super league in the uk yeah. so the premier league for women they're all collaborating and sharing best practices and understanding how to come to market to the sponsors in a more unified way fantastic we feel yeah. the same opportunity is existing here for the wnba it's just so much going on for us yeah, it's yeah. how do we handle all this opportunity but that's part of my yeah. job is to solve for that no that's fantastic it's creating the opportunity to add value no i think it sounds great and it leads directly on to i guess my next question really that is for you what would you say what are your long-term ambitions then for relometric where do you really want it to go yeah, I believe that you have to solve truly omni-channel. You have to solve multiple marketing metrics. Obviously, we've talked about the data. Yeah, in any fragmented market, it's going to consolidate. And I think with us and our parent company, GumGum, Gum, right, we are in a position where, you know, we can play a strategy and try to be one of the strategic drivers of how the market scales and consolidates and modernizes itself for the future. I really believe that that is ultimately how you will achieve the scale required to meet all of these opportunities. It'll be too hard for smaller companies that are scattered in terms of they do these things, but not those things. We'll make the whole market a bit slower to adapt to what's mm. possible. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. And what about in the immediate term now, of course, uh, I know you've been with the business around about coming up to six months, which has probably flown by. So for you really, what would really make your first year then at the company then? What would that main highlight be for you then? Yeah, absolutely. I think right now we are in the middle of some really exciting product rollout. So we've, we started some things right away. I think it's now more like almost seven months, but nonetheless, right. we're getting to the point where we're going to be releasing some new things in our software. We have some really big partnerships that you'll see announced in the coming, in the coming six to eight weeks. And then we've set some interesting company-wide KPI, key performance indicators, and are really aligning the whole culture around achieving these things. Ultimately, we have a, I wouldn't call it a small team, but it's not a huge team, but it is a mighty and a fierce team that does a ton of work. It does amaze me on a weekly basis, like how many things this team is doing. And we also, we leverage different partnerships and contractors in different countries to help us get things done quicker with local expertise, but we have to coordinate all of that. So being able to get the team to rally around these goals 
and still like bend, but not mm. that is a gold standard for what we need to achieve as a company, as a culture mm. this year. I also want to get the people together more often because right now we're mainly virtual. We have people mm. in hubs in you know, the bigger cities in LA, Southern California, Chicago, New York, London. And so I'm working to bring people together more often. Mm. And then by next year, right, I think we'll establish some office hubs as well. We keep our growth going and our culture growing from a perspective like that. And our culture is unique because most people have a passion for sports. So and some, and a lot of them have experience playing sports in the collegiate level. So it's impressive because a lot of them are like just really buttoned up business people. Some of them are like technologists. Some of them are like really deep analysts, but they yeah. can also tell you like during the holidays, we all went to an NHL game at Madison Square Garden, which was fantastic, right? Great holiday party for a company like ours. The amount of like stats and analytics and historical sports things that they all knew floored yeah. me. I thought I knew a lot. And these are all yeah. younger people than me. And yeah. it, it's not, it, it's men and women and they all yeah. have knowledge and love and passion for sport, yet they also yeah. have passion for their jobs. And they're yeah. also really ambitious in learning new things. To me, that is something that I have to protect, nurture and grow because there is a special group of people that is together. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. It must be difficult for you, you and your team to be able to watch sports now. You're following all the brands and the advertising everywhere. You're I, I'm busy. Lens. I'm like, <laughs> I'm sitting there making mental notes. I'm slacking my team. Did you see this? And I need to put down the phone during games. Otherwise, I think uh, it's a bit distracting. I've also been hooked on all of these like streaming shows that are about like teams cool. or leagues or yes. the FIFA stuff. Like, I yeah. can't stop watching this stuff either. Going to my houses again, more yeah. European football documentaries or whatever, but I, I'm not as much of an expert on European football. The team in London teaches me a lot about this, but I need to become as much of an expert on that as US sports. And so this is a, a little <laughs> bit of a cheat code for me to get there. Yeah, that's it. Isn't it? Well, that sounds great then. Well, Jayla, thank you so much for your time now. It's been fantastic to hear about you and your career journey, but really understanding the evolution of sports marketing and the importance of measurement within that. And I guess that's really where Relometrics comes into it, isn't it? Which is understanding the ROI from these sponsorships and partnerships that are happening. Thank you so much. It's been so great to learn from you. And hopefully we can get you on again in the future to tell us where yeah, we're absolutely. going in a couple of years time. Yeah, I really appreciate being here and look forward to speaking with you again. Fantastic. All right. Thanks, Jane. Thank you. Welcome back to the Life in Digital podcast, the US edition. As the world of sports sponsorships becomes increasingly more complex, the power of data-driven insights and AI is more important than ever. In this week's episode, our host, Dan Bolter, welcomes Jay Prasad, CEO of Rello Metrics to explore cutting edge strategies and best practices for maximizing sponsorship investments and maintaining revenue growth in an increasingly competitive marketplace. We hope you will enjoy. A big thank you to Jay and Dan for this week's episode. If you want to find out more about the work that Rellometrics are doing, we will link to them in the show notes and via our website. And we hope you will join us next time for another episode of Life in Digital.